This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. What are you doing later? Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes! Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Car. Pass the war quickly. Down to six seconds. Car going down again. And it's Quentin Williams this time for the Jets. And welcome back to another episode of the Cool Your Jets podcast. We're your host, Ben Blessington and Michael Nania. We have another head coaching candidate deep dive, this time Colts defensive coordinator Matt Eberflus. And I have to say, Michael, Eberflus is a guy that not many people are talking about. He's not, maybe not the flashiest of names. But if I had to say like what my gut was telling me, he he might be the favorite in my eyes. I think he's a really strong contender to, to win this Jets head coaching spot. Michael, what do you think? Yeah, I agree. I mean, he hasn't gotten a lot of hype from Jets fans, but the connections are there with Rex Hogan. He's done great work with that defense. So I think he's – he definitely uh, – when I think whenever he comes up, I feel like he is a name that could definitely uh, end up getting the job. So I think he should be getting talked about more. Yeah, and, and you want to be careful as, as a fan to not equate hype with with success and, and the type of head coach that, that he's going to be because we've seen it plenty of times. And and you can even look at, at Iberflus' head coach and Frank Reich, not a guy that was hyped up, I guess, by the media. They even hired somebody else. Reich comes in, and he's been a great head coach for Indianapolis. Um, but we're joined by George Bremer of the Herald Bulletin, at GM Bremer on Twitter. Make sure you shoot him a follow. To break down Matt Eberflus, first off, George, how you doing, man? And I said this to you when you got on. How does how does winning taste? Just uh, I'm just everybody we're talking to is is representing a winning team. I just wanted to know how winning is uh, for you. <laughs> That's been such an unusual year, I think, for everybody. Uh, it's been great to to kind of be able to follow this team and, and see their story all year long. So, uh, you know, the fans though, I don't think they're any happier here than they are anywhere else right now. There, there's always something to complain about. Well, I mean they haven't met Jets fans because we've been complaining since like 2011, but Eberflus is a really interesting candidate. Obviously. I mean, he has a really interesting story about how he ended up in Indianapolis. He was Josh Mm -hmm. McDaniels pick to be the defensive coordinator. McDaniels backs out and they kind of arranged marriage with Reich, but it really worked out. I mean, Eberflus has been in the NFL for uh, a long time, a linebackers Mm -hmm. coach with the Cowboys and with the Browns. He was even uh, in Missouri. He actually helped recruit Brad Smith. Jets fans will know that name. Um, so he's, he is a a football lifer. Uh, I guess George, we'll start with this. I mean, the Colts had a 
wildly successful year on the defensive side of the football. And Eberflus obviously gets the credit for that. Allowed the ninth fewest points per drive this season. I guess just talk about his success as a defensive coordinator this year. How has he led to the improvement over the, I guess, I don't want to say underwhelming, but a drop-off, I guess, in 2019. He came in in 2018. They had a great year. 2019 was a little bit of a drop-off, but a really strong uh, resurgence in 2020. Just talk about his 2020 season. Yeah, I mean, it's, it all starts with DeForest Buckner. I mean, obviously, that was the biggest pickup for this team this offseason. Uh, somebody that they, they felt like was a perfect fit for what they wanted to do. Uh, and one of those rare times where it, it kind of worked the way it, it was supposed to on paper. You bring a guy in, you say, this is his role, this is what you want to do. Uh, and then, obviously, games start, and it, and it all kind of falls apart more often than not. And Buckner's been exactly what they wanted him to be, if not maybe even a little better. Uh, a lot of people here upset that he's not on the Pro Bowl roster. Um, his ability to just crash pockets and and not just make plays himself. He led the team with nine and a half sacks, but open things up for guys on the edge. Justin Houston, Kaboko Ture starting to come on a little bit here late in the year. Uh, Denico Autry had a terrific year. He had a great bad back year for him, uh, probably just coincidentally in a contract year. Um, but, you know, I, I think that's where it all starts. Uh, but you had, to me, the biggest surprise this year, when they signed Xavier Rhodes, I kind of shook my head a little bit. I mean, it was – he had a terrible year in Minnesota. He looked like a guy on the downside of his career. I think he's 30. Um, it just didn't fit with the kind of thing that Chris Ballard usually does. And it, it came along at the same time that they were kind of passing on some other corners. And there was a lot of question is, Why? You know, why, why would you do this? And Rhodes came out, especially at the beginning of the year, was outstanding. But he's been one of their most consistent guys all year long. It's really helped that secondary. And I feel like Eberflus, I think, had a lot to do with that because he came in and, and he said from day one, we're going to play him differently than he played Minnesota. We have a plan and we're going to let him be more physical. We're going to let him get back to what he does well. And I think that's that gets to the heart of one of the things that I think has made him successful here in Indianapolis. He he's not, he is dogmatic in the sense that he's a Tampa two guy. He comes from that Monty Kiffin train, you know, he's going to live and die by that scheme, but he, he's not unwilling to bend to, to what's to understand what the strength is of a particular player and to try to get the most out of him. And I think that's been, we've seen that whether the defense has been good or bad or, you know, whether it's hot or cold all three years he's been here, that's been one consistent with him. Yeah. And you mentioned that he's sort of a Tampa two guy and you talked about what he's done with the road, sort of adapting to his skill set. So from a schematic standpoint, what kind of a defensive coach is Eberflus? Is he strictly, is that Tampa two going to be something he brings with him to a new team? We sort of saw some of that with Greg Williams and uh, during his tenure with the Jets. Is that the type of guy he's going to be? Or how, how malleable is he in terms of adapting his scheme to the players? And what are his core defensive philosophies? Yeah, you know, I think he's definitely a, a cover two guy. That That's his background. And that that's really where he came up um, his NFL start really he owes a lot. He talks about a lot. He owes a lot to Rob Marinelli uh, who's part of that whole tree. They were together in Dallas and it was really Marinelli who kind of championed him along the way. And I, I believe, I don't want to speak out of turn, but I believe he was offered the defense coordinator position or at least an upgrade at some point in Dallas and didn't take it because he didn't want to move Marinelli out of 
uh, of the role that he was in and you know obviously ended up here in Indy under extremely unique circumstances uh with, with Josh McDaniels hiring him and then backing out of the job and I thought that was a really interesting situation uh, you know I'm kind of digressing here from from the question but that was a really interesting situation in that Frank Reich has admitted he came in he wasn't really sure you know when, when you do the interview with Chris Ballard and he finds out the defense coordinator is already on the staff no coach is going to be excited about that nobody's really you know jumping for joy but he said he met Eberflus and it was about two hours and and he he realized this is this is the right guy but I thought part of that and it it does I will eventually circle around to your question here Chris Ballard knew him better than than Reich did and he was hired by McDaniels but he was a guy that Ballard wanted here because Ballard too Ballard worked in Chicago uh for years before he went to Kansas City and ended up here and he had a lot of experience with Lovey Smith and that that side of the of the Tampa 2 train and he really had heard a lot about Eberflus from Marinelli. You know, that, that was their kind of mutual connection. And so Ballard wanted him to come in and he wanted him specifically to play this scheme. He wanted to use the speed. He wanted to play on that turf. He knew they're going to play eight games a year on that turf there in Indianapolis. He wanted to, to take advantage of the athleticism and the speed of that team. And so I do think Marinelli, I do think Eberflus will come in and, and be a Tampa two guy. I think that that's his, his background. But the biggest thing with him, more than scheme or anything else, is is effort. They preach extreme effort to the point where when they're doing video breakdown, uh, you know, on Mondays after a game, they have a stat they call loafs. Uh, it's become a little bit of a legend around here now. And you get checked off. If you don't run to the football, it doesn't matter. If you're the left defensive end and there's a pass 25 yards down the, the right sideline, if you don't run to the football, you don't have to get there. But if you don't go with all-out effort, you get a loaf. And if you get too many loafs, you get graded down, and you know it, it affects your playing time. It's practice. It's it's everything. With him, it is all-out effort, and that system is is pretty demanding. I think the the most telling thing about Eberflus to me in that regard is that the defensive players they haven't just bought into it. They they are a part of it. They'll talk about it. You know, they'll, we, we've tried to get them off and on at times. Like, well, don't you argue a low from now? You know, you're in film and, and you get a loaf and you say that, how can you count that? And they all say, we know what the standard is. And I think that's a state, that's a testament to, to the coaching job that he does that they, they buy in and, and you see it every Sunday, you know, this defense, you talk about hats to the ball. There's, often seven eight nine guys around the football and it's not a coincidence yeah i think the jets probably led the league in loafs the last decade or so <laughs> um and when you talk about his, his scheme and just to, to clarify if he does come because look in today's nfl a lot of it isn't necessarily three four or four three they play on a lot of nickel i guess schematically what were, would be some of the personnel changes the jets would have to make i mean it, it sounds like he is a guy especially when you hear with, with xavier rhodes that He's going to take the guys that he has and he's going to build the best scheme around them, put them in the best position to succeed. But clearly he's going to have some type of, of uh, players in mind that he wants to bring into, into the fold. The Jets are obviously going to have a lot of turnover all over the place, but specifically on the defensive side of the ball, a lot of free agents, a lot of young guys. So they're going to have the ability to sign to either transform into a four, three or stick with the three, four that they're with, I guess, strictly, who would be the types of players, I guess, that that Iberfus would want to bring into his defense specifically? Yeah, I think you know, we went through that same transition here 
when he came over because Chuck Pagano was running a three, four, uh, you know, and they had really big run stuffing defensive ends and, and big physical nose tackles. And that was the biggest change um, that and the linebackers and that, that front seven was really where it, where it started. They, they went from, they sell some big guys. I mean, I, the last thing I would call Buckner is small, but they, they put a premium on quickness, lateral movement, um, and aggression. You know, I think this is a defense that it really all starts with those, those, that front four getting penetration, causing havoc in the backfield. When they're not doing that, things look pretty ugly. The times this defense has struggled is, is when they're blocked up front. They're not going to blitz a lot. They'll bring it every now and again, and, and they do have some creative ways of doing it. Uh, I thought Darius Leonard was going to kill Mike Glennon on one Sunday, <laughs> um, but you know, they, they will do it from time to time, but it's, it's more measured. It's, it, they pick their spots when it comes to that, and it's really about that front four getting in, getting the pressure. Um, right. They've talked a lot. The, the most important spots in this defense, the three guys that, that matter the most are the three technique, which is why Buckner's here and why they gave up so much to get him. Uh, the weak side linebacker, which is the, the spot that Darius Leonard plays. And then the nickel slot. They actually put a lot on that corner because he's got to be so versatile in what he does. And that's Kenny Moore here. Um, so those, those are the three spots that they most want. And in, in those spots, you got to have a three technique who can stop the run, but can get upfield and and make plays. And it, you know there aren't a whole lot of guys who can do both of that uh, to the level right. that that Buckner's done it. Uh, they want, I think that the image for that weak side linebacker is Derek Brooks. That's when when they drafted Darius Leonard. That's what they said. We see Derek Brooks. We think he's going to be that guy, um, the, the Hall of Famer for Tampa. That that's the kind of that's what they want at that spot. And then that corner has got to be he's got to be able to blitz he's got to be able to play man he's got to be able to disguise coverages he's got to be able to play zone he's got to have ball skills it's a really really demanding spot so you're telling me that Eberflus is not going to send a cover zero in a Hail Mary situation is, is what I'm hearing <laughs> um well it's actually well what you said though is actually the Jets don't have a lot of strengths but some of those key positions you talk about are, are some positions where the Jets actually would be kind of a good fit. Obviously, Quinn and Williams at played mm-hmm. four three defensive tackle in college. He's ascended as a, as a uh, great talent for the Jets at that three tech spot. And you talk about guys who can stop the run and get after the passer. Quinn and Williams really was able to do that this year, and, and I'm looking forward to watching him develop. C.J. Mosley comes back next year. We'll see how he is after two years off. I think that'll be the probably the biggest transition for the Jets. I think their defensive linemen are pretty versatile and can play. Four three or three four. The linebackers, though, the Jets don't have many coverage linebackers, so that might be an adjustment. But they do have C.J. Mosley at that spot. And then if they decide to bring back Brian Poole in that slot corner, he was one of the top slot corners in the league last year. And then in through his few uh, through his few games this year, obviously he was hurt, but he is tenacious. He can get after the quarterback. So you know the Jets actually do have some of those pieces. He wouldn't be coming into a completely barren cupboard. I mean, as for the rest of the roster, it certainly needs a lot of work. Now, when we think of Eberflus not just as a defensive coordinator, as a head coach, because the, the theme this entire offseason will be to find the head coach. They need that CEO, that leader, that guy who's going to focus on not just one side of the ball. He's going to have to be the leader of the entire team. I guess, what are some of the traits that Matt Eberflus possesses that makes you think he'll be able to make that transition, that, that, tr- that transition that plenty of successful coordinators have not been able to make from top tier coordinator 
to top tier head coach? What are some of the traits that, that give you confidence that he can make that jump? Yeah, I think, you know, it started in Dallas. They, they made him when he, I believe he was a linebackers coach there, uh, but they also made him the passing game coordinator. And so he was kind of overseeing all of that, that element. And he had a little bit more duty uh, than he, your normal position coach would have before he came here as a coordinator. And really Frank Reich has given him, it's his defense. He's the head coach of the defense. You know, Reich comes in and, and he'll, he, he, I think he drops in the meeting room most Mondays and he certainly will, will make his voice heard if there's a specific element he wants, but it's really been Eberflus's baby. You know, it, it's been his show to run over there. Um, not that Reich doesn't pay any attention to the defense, but obviously he's also calling plays on offense. He's very involved on that side of the ball. Uh, and so I think Eberflus already has a sense of making some, some pretty big decisions, having a lot of responsibility. And he just, there's just a feel about him. It doesn't translate to anything necessarily. Um, but really from the, the first time that we got him in a, in, a, in a presser, he just has that head coach demeanor. And I know that that doesn't really amount to anything, um, but. It does. After, after watching Adam feel. Gase, after watching Adam Gase, that does amount to something. <laughs> yeah, it's just the way he carries himself. And it's, it's not hard imagine him running his own team and you know Frank Reich today obviously he's getting asked about Iberflus because Iberflus's name is is coming up and he's gonna take some interviews here uh and Frank Reich said today that obviously he doesn't want to lose him uh but he feels like this guy has earned this this is you know he's ready and he's earned the chance to be a head coach yeah and you talked a little bit about his head coach demeanor how he does show off the just the ability to handle that position. Are, are there any concerns you do have about him making that leap? Because like Ben said, there are a lot of coordinators that struggle to make that transition. So if he does make that jump to head coach, is there anything that does give you some pause as to whether he can make that leap? Yeah. You know, I look at the defense and, and it's been really good this year. It's probably been the best Colts defense since, uh, I don't know, 2008, 2009. I mean, it's since the Manning era. Um, but at the same time, last year and this year, not to the same degree, but they've dropped off in the second half of the season a little bit. And I don't know if that effort that we were talking about earlier, I don't know if sometimes that goes, if guys are tired late in the year, I don't know if that's part of it or not. Um, but their numbers, the second half of the year, last year, the second half of the year, this year have not been as good. And then in the last two weeks, the second half of the game. Uh, you know, allowing Pittsburgh not only to get back in the game, but to win it. Uh, that was one of the biggest disappointments of the season for this team. And the defense really didn't have a lot of answers uh, last week against Steelers. And then on Sunday, they it's kind of started that slide again. But I guess this, while talking about his weakness, is also one of his strengths. They're able to cut it off quickly. Now, it was the Jaguars, and that had something to do with it. Uh, but they didn't – it didn't steamroll the way that it did the week before. They, they gave up a touchdown early – and the second half. And then after that, I think the next four drives were 43 yards and, and three first downs combined. So um, I, I do wonder sometimes if I'm not saying he's pushing guys too hard, but I do wonder sometimes if, if maybe there needs to be a little bit more modulation of that over the course of the season, I guess. Yeah. I mean, I guess, how would you describe his, his coaching style? Because you're talking about there's a potential that some players are, are burned out, I guess. 
uh, in a sense. Would you would you describe him as a disciplinarian? Because there's always that that fear. It's kind of the, the Jim Harbaugh story where it's like he comes in and that first year there's that culture shock. That culture shock. You're talking about he's tracking loafs. Um, and that initial year they get a big jolt. Uh, and then maybe it carries into year two and year three. But the longer he stays, that that message starts to fall on deaf ears. Is that how you describe Eberflus? Or would you say that he's more not necessarily disciplinarian, but he's just more straightforward and he just expects high effort. And it's not necessarily his his coaching methods that are that are leading to burnout. It's more just the fact that he's pushing these guys to, to their very limit. Maybe part of it's just luck or you know, never know. Yeah. Um, is that how would I guess how would you just describe his his coaching style in general? Yeah, I think it's more the latter. I think he's very straightforward, and that's what it's that's what it's all based about. You know, they they talk a lot, all of them, the defensive players, him, uh, the position coaches, about being just honest with each other. So when they grade the film, it, it's not about tearing somebody down, and it's not about trying to be, you know, the the dictator, the the tough guy in the room. It's just about being honest about what happened on a play, and if that's brutally honest, so be it. You know, so um, you because they his philosophy a lot of it is that's the only way you're going to get better if you gloss over what happened or you try to make excuses for it then it's going to happen again you need to be honest about why it happened and what needs to be done to fix it and I think it's really the guys that have been here all three years and it's not a really big group because this defense has changed a lot over the past three seasons um but guys like Darius Leonard um I think Grover Stewart's been here the whole run with him uh those those type of players, Kenny Moore's been here the whole run. They swear by him. I mean, they will. I think they'd be the the first guys to say hire him right now. You know, if the Jets were able to talk to them, uh, I think they would they would be doing what Patrick Mahomes is doing for Eric Bieniemy right now. They they absolutely uh, love the guy. So I, I don't think it's that. Like I just wonder sometimes if physically, uh, it's just me personally. If I'm running that hard on every play, I'm thinking by week 15, week 16 maybe I'm not running as fast as I was in week one or week two. Right. (laughs) And you mentioned a few players who have been there through that whole run. And the Colts have a lot of young talent on defense from Darius Leonard to Kenny Moore, a lot of different guys. So who, in addition to those two guys are some of the best, um, the best player development stories on that defensive side of the ball under Eberflus, because for the Jets, player development is definitely something they've struggled with. They've you know been able to draft some players in decent spots, get that young talent in, but they haven't been able to get the most out of those guys, get them to their ceiling. So um, what do you think of the player development that they've had defensively under Eberflus, and who are some of those players that really exemplify what he's been able to do in that area? Yeah, I think Grover Stewart's the poster boy right now. He was a fourth-round pick, I want to say, in 2017. It would have been Ballard's first draft. So he actually got here the year before Eberflus came in. Uh, and Ballard was really excited. He's, he's from a tiny school called Albany State in Georgia. Um, and there was all these questions about, you know, what level of play, level of competition, all things that come with small school guys. And uh, he was a big guy. But Ballard kept saying he can move. And, and he's going to be able to help this team. And they switched, obviously they switched defensive schemes from the one he was drafted into. And it took him, in 2018, he was still pretty quiet. Last year, he started to see flashes in training camp. You know how that story goes every year, you know, the, the training camp wonder. Oh, and it was me, a little <laughs> bit in the regular season. And this year, he's their best run defender. Uh, he hasn't had as much of an impact, I think, on the passing game as, as they would like yet. Uh, but he's he's doing things you don't see nose tackles do, running down 
players in the backfield running across the line of scrimmage. I mean, it's and, and I think he's the number one guy. I mean, he he doesn't get a lot of national attention, uh, partly because he's playing next to the Force Buckner, but he, they just re-signed him. He just got a contract extension uh, a couple weeks ago. And and he's a guy that, you know, no one knew anything about him coming in. He was a high ceiling guy, and they've they've gotten him there. You know, he he's really become the guy that they they envision him to be. Um, I don't know if Bobby Okariki counts as much on that, that kind of scale. Um, but the, the linebacker group in general, I mean, Darius Leonard's a freak, and he'd probably be good wherever he played for whoever he played for. Anthony Walker made a tremendous jump. He's another guy that was drafted to be the 3-4 linebacker. Uh, they put him in the middle, and there were questions immediately about is he fast enough to play in this scheme? You know, is he too too big. He had to slim down. He, he went on a diet. Um, he was their leading tackler last year, and he's right there again. I think second to, to Leonard again this year. He's a super smart guy, and then that I think he's an example of the type of guy that, when I was talking about um, Eberflus kind of changing up and, and being willing to kind of go with what's there, and not force the issue. He didn't fit. Like I said, he didn't fit the, the perfect profile. He's not a super freak athletically. He's not fast, but he's incredibly intelligent. And Eberflus turned him into one of the captains and, and the leaders of this defense. I think that's been really big for him. Okariki's uh, is the physical freak from Stanford. Uh, who He's just been on a rise. He's been on a two-year rise, and he'll probably end up, I would assume, uh, just looking at salary cap situations and things like that, the, the likelihood is that Okariki will take over Walker's job this year and Walker will be free agent. So, um, you know, I think that group is one that it, it's the, it's the group that Eberflus came up with. If you go to training camp, he's with them probably the first hour of every practice, just, you know, getting out on the details. That's really where his heart lies, I think. And, and you see it. This linebacker group from 2018 when he came in to now is unrecognizable. Um, the play is, is increased so much there. Um, and there's been other stories so far where it's not happened, too. I mean, Rocky Sen, second-round pick last year, had a rough season, uh, showed some sparks this year, but has kind of fallen back into bad habits, uh, and he struggled a bit. So it goes both ways. Um, but I think, guys, it, it's also evident with veterans. Xavier Rhodes, as I mentioned, T.J. Carey's a guy who played for Greg Williams in Cleveland uh, and came in and, and had a very specific role as, as sort of, well, you're going to be the backup to Kenny Moore as a slot guy, but they've been able to use him in, in Yassin's place. And a lot of it has to do with, with Iberflus understanding, hey, here's a veteran. We, we can use him. We'll, we'll play to, to what he does best. And when you think of Iberflus as a head coach candidate, a guy who you know is getting a lot of interviews, clearly projects well to that, making that jump. What are some particular, maybe a game or a play, just particular moments, maybe even a locker room moment, something in a press conference, moments that come to mind that really made it jump out that he is head coach material? I think the biggest one, it's the one that kind of is the touchstone for the Frank Rack era here. And it's funny because it happened during their worst season. Last year, right before the fall happened, they went out to Kansas City. It was a Sunday night game in October, and they had lost there in the playoffs the, the previous January uh, with Andrew Luck under center. So there was no expectation. They just lost to the, to the Raiders at home. 
Uh, there was absolutely no expectation that, that anything was going to go right that day. And they held Mahomes to 13 points. He had an ankle injury. That needs to be mentioned. And, and Sammy Watkins didn't play uh, that day either. But they end up holding that Kansas City team to 13 points. I think it's still the lowest uh, for any of the starts. They win the game 19 to 13. And they didn't play. I don't know that they played that exact defensive plan again since. They were very physical. They're usually not. You know, it's a lot of zone. It's a lot of make you take the, the deep route type of thing. They were physical. They were bumping receivers. Uh, they blitzed more often than they normally do. Justin Houston had a homecoming revenge kind of game. Uh, but that that contest, watching them play almost a completely different style and, and have success against Kansas City that nobody else has really had, I think that's probably Eberflus' shining moment here. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think that when you look at any potential head coach, it's how they deal with any sort of adversity, uh, and especially in New York. I mean, there's going to be times, especially with this roster, um, where they're going to lose games. They might have a losing stretch and that fans are going to get angry. He may even get booed. Uh, and it's all about how he, how he responds to that, how he deals with adversity. And it's good to hear that he has at least some um, experience of bouncing up, uh, you know, bouncing back, getting up off the canvas. And and part of the reason I think that Iberflus makes sense. I mean, he's not the flashy Eric Bieniemy uh, type of candidate. He's not the Joe Brady, the young, exciting offensive guy. He's a defensive guy, NFL lifer, but he has connections to the Jets front office. I mean, the Jets, uh, mm -hmm. he has a connection with Rex Hogan, uh, who was in the Colts front office and is now in the Jets front office. I mean, how much do you think that helps a guy like Iberflus in a league that's fully about connections? Um, you know, getting somewhere where from, I guess, from Iberflus's perspective, his comfortability going to the Jets, knowing that he has uh, a connection with Rex Hogan. And I, I guess from the Jets perspective, when you're looking for a head coach and you, there's a, a connection from the front office and the head coach, just because you want that synergy. And I think that's something that the Colts have witnessed with, with Ballard and Reich. No, absolutely. And I think it's going to be really important to Iberflus because I think one of the biggest things that, that Ballard's done here in Indy is he's very much, and he had this reputation coming in, so it's not a surprise. He's very much involved with the coaches. They'll actually have coaches come into some of the scouting meetings. He wants the scouts to work hand in hand with them so that the scouts understand exactly what they're looking for. When they're going out and they're trying to, to look for the guys that they want to draft, he wants to know exactly. And, and he's had, you know, Iberflus has held meetings. The position coaches have had meetings with scouts where they sit down and they talk about, this is what a will, will linebacker looks like in this scheme. We need a guy who can do these things. If he can't do this or this, don't even put him on your list. And I think Rex Hogan being there, having been here and been part of that, I think that would mean a lot to Eberflus because, you know, that the draft's a lifeblood, obviously, of your franchise. And if you've got a guy who understands your defense and understands what it takes to fill that, uh, that's, I would think that's going to be really high on his list when he's looking for a head coaching job having that synergy and, and, and that sort of thing. It, it's, I think it's been a big part of the reason the Colts have been able to win through all the things that they faced here in the last three years with Ballard and Wright. And another big part about hiring a head coach is the type of staff that he'll build. Uh, and when you hire a defensive guy like, like Eberflutes, it's the risk with every defensive coach that you hire. It's, well, who's going to run the offense? Who's going to be the, the quote-unquote head coach of the offense? Obviously, the Jets have learned that. Maybe having two head coaches isn't the best idea. It's probably better if Iberflus oversees the whole operation, but he's going to have to delegate that offensive play calling to a coordinator. What type of staff do you think he'd assemble? I mean, a guy who's been around the league for a while, presumably he has some connections. And, and you know, 
if there's not any particular names, I guess what type of philosophy do you think that Eberflus would value on the offensive side? I mean, generally a lot of the defensive guys with Jets saw with Rex Ryan and Todd Bowles, like that smash mouth run first football. That's not necessarily what the Colts run. That's not necessarily what, what Frank Reich's offense has been. So I guess the first part is what type of staff uh, do you think Eberflus would, would uh, assemble? And then what do you think his philosophy would be not just as a head coach, but on the offensive side of the ball, the, the, the part of the ball, the part of the game that he doesn't have much experience on. Yeah. It's hard to say really on that offensive side, because you don't get a whole lot of a peek into his philosophy in that, in that regard. But I do know one of the things we, we talked with him about early this year is that everywhere he's been, and certainly now Philip Rivers has been in the league for 17 years, he likes to sit down with the quarterback of his team and not just and pick his brain about what he's seeing from their defense. You know, Rivers has done that a lot through training camp and through um, just different situations that, that he's been around, um, you know, in the, in the short time that he was here, of just sitting down even with individual players and saying a lot of the, the Colts defenders said that they're better blitzers this year than they were last year because Rivers has specifically personally told them, look, you're tipping your hands. You're doing this, and you need to do that. And so Eberflus said that's something he finds very valuable, and he's spent a lot of time with the quarterback. So I think he's got – I don't know what it is, but I think he's got a, a probably a more defined offensive idea than, than, than you might think just from all that time he's spent around guys. that I know one of the guys that, that really he's close with is Tony Romo, for instance. They were in Dallas for a long time together, uh, and he really cares about what Romo thinks. Um, so I think I think Dallas would would – there'd be a, a heavy de- Dallas flavor to whatever staff he puts together that those Jason Garrett years, um, you know, guys that, that were around then that, that were there with him. Um, I think there would definitely be that Marinelli tree. You'd see a lot of that. Anybody coming from that, that Lovey Smith, Rod Marinelli, uh, you know, Tony Dungy tree would, would be a potential hire, I would think. Um, and it'll be interesting to see. I was trying to think if there's anybody on the staff now that he might try and poach. And, and probably the, the number one guy would probably be Marcus Brady, who's the quarterback's coach here. Um, he was a CFL quarterback for years. It has some records up there, I think, or did at one point. And is really getting a lot of credit for, you know, it's been a revolving door here at that position and, and Brady gets a lot of credit for getting guys ready and, and having them ready to go early in the season. I, I think he's a guy who might be ready to step up. I'm not saying that Eber Fluce would bring him on as an offensive coordinator, but there's obviously a connection there. I think Marcus Brady's a guy who would be ready to make a leap like that. So to bring everything together on Eber Fluce, if the Jets do hire Eber Fluce or for whatever team hires him, what would be your pitch to whether it's Jets fans or that team, whoever it is, what would your pitch be to that fan base as to who they are getting as their head coach? Yeah, I think you're going to get a team that, that absolutely plays to the fullest of, of its ability. You know, I think that's even when things have gone well, poorly here, you never feel like this defense is not trying, you know, things might not be going the way you want them to. Uh, but you don't you don't get that sort of lazy effort that, that sometimes happens, you know, where guys are going through the motion. He won't accept that. And I would assume that that would be franchise wide. Um, I think that would be the number one thing. You're, you're going to see a team that, that's fully committed. And like I said, I'm I've been impressed. It's been three years here. 
um, I've been really impressed with the buy-in from that defensive side because usually, you know, we talked about it earlier. When you have a guy who can be kind of hard to, to on you and, and grade you at such a level, um, you see that burnout. I haven't seen it here. You know, maybe it'd be different. Maybe if you guys uh, talk to Pierre Desir or Cliffy Wilson or some of the guys that have gone through here, maybe they'd have a different view. Uh, but the guys that have been here and, and, and have succeeded in, the, in this scheme, in this system, they swear by him. You know, they, they talk about him as, as in as glowing terms as, as they do Frank Reich. You hear the defense say the same things about Coach Flus. Um, I, I think they would, you know, anything he asks of them, they're willing to do it. And I, I would expect to see that with, with whatever team he ends up with. I think we can disregard whatever Pierre Desir has to say about Matt Eberflus <laughs> because of the effort that he put forth in that Monday night football game against the Patriots, where he just allowed them to just pretty much walk right in front of him. I don't think that would have happened under Eberflus. So I think we can just, and, and Quincy Wilson for that matter, who we, who, who we barely saw the Jets and Colts actually have quite a few players. Mostly mm-hmm. the Jets are getting the, the Colts scrap heap of players, but we do have Colts legend Thomas Hennessy as our long snapper, <laughs> who we actually had on the podcast too who I think is, uh, is a steal. And I know Colts fans are ruining the day that, that the Jets made that trade. Um, before we get out of here, just because you're here, I think it's probably a long shot, but he is a guy that that um, could be considered for a head coaching uh, spot in, in the near future. Nick Sirianni, your offensive coordinator. And I don't think he's a guy that, that'll get interviews uh, this offseason. Mm-hmm. But going into the season, I, I labeled him as kind of an under-the-radar guy. He's from the area. Offensive coordinator, obviously the Rex Hogan connection. Um do you think it's too early for him uh, as far as Sirianni goes? Do you think he has what it takes to, to become a good head coach uh, in the next few years? It's probably not his cycle just yet, but it does seem like he's a guy that may be groomed as uh, as a head coach in the next few years. Yeah, I think he's going to be in that next group. He's in that next tier. You know, probably not, not as you said, not this year. I think he got a little bit of attention way back in 2018, uh, but he didn't really go very far. I think he's definitely a guy, you know, obviously he's got that ambition. Who doesn't? Once you're a coordinator, obviously the next step is you're going to be your own head coach. You're going to run your own program. I think he's held back a little bit by the fact that Frank Wright calls the plays here. And it's, it's ironic because Frank didn't call the plays in Philadelphia, but he had been a play caller before with the Chargers. So there was some kind of track record there. Nick hasn't done that yet. This is his first coordinator spot. So I think it's still going to take a little bit of time there, but there's, I can't count the number of times that, that in a post-game interview, Frank Reich has said some variation of credit Nick for that play. He's the one that worked on it during the week. He's the one that, that argued for it to, to put it on the call sheet for game day. So even though he's not calling plays, he's very heavily involved. It's a very much like Philadelphia. I think everybody knows the stories coming out of there the year they won the Super Bowl in terms of the process there, the collaboration uh, that there's very much of that going on here. Mike Groves came in this year. He was part of that Eagles team too, uh, the wide receivers coach here. They there's a very collaborative effort of trying to, and, and it's it sounds like from you know I'm obviously not in the meetings, but what we hear of them, it sounds like it, it's it's pretty spirited at times. You, know, you they want guys to stand on the table. We need this call in for this situation, and here's why. So I think that that's I think when I think Sirianni will interview better than people expect when when he gets these opportunities. Yeah, I mean, he's certainly a guy to keep an eye out um, for in, in the next few cycles. It's probably a year too early for him, but he's kind of a prime example um, of if the, if the Colts continue their success, maybe they make a little playoff run this year, maybe the year after that, he's a guy that I could totally see 
uh, getting a head coaching job. George, it was an absolute pleasure. Thank you for taking time out of your day to, to talk to us about Eberflus. As I said, I, I truly do think he's a dark horse candidate. And, and I think Michael and I, he's kind of our gut pick on who the Jets will, uh, yeah. will select. They've talked so much about building a culture and wanting a CEO type of guy. He's learned under one of the better coaches in my mind uh, in the league in Frank Reich. Um, he, he makes a lot of sense for the Jets, the connections to the front office. Um, just let our listeners know where, where, they can, where they can find you, where they can read your stuff. If the Colts do end up uh, hiring Eberflus, I'm sure we'll, we'll try to have you back on and maybe we can break down um, some more about him because he's an interesting guy. I think you sold certainly some Jets fans on him because I feel a lot better about uh, him being the hire after talking to you. But yeah, just just plug your stuff, man. Uh, it, was, it was a pleasure having you on. Yeah, no doubt. And if they're looking for the CEO type of guy and a culture changer, I think I think Eberflus is your guy. I mean, I, that's he'll bring that. He'll bring that 100%. Uh, my, I'm on Twitter. I'm at GM Bremer, obviously. Uh, and then uh, harrowbolton.com is, is where my writing is. Uh, you know, obviously, lots of Bill stuff this week. I, I know uh, probably more than a few Jets fans root for the Colts just, just so Buffalo doesn't get the win on Saturday. Exactly. I mean, exactly. We're all Colts fans this week. Um, so <laughs> so we're, we're pulling for for Indianapolis. Um, and, and, you know, if the Jets season goes down the shitter next year like it has the last few years, it's always good to pick up a, a B team to watch. And the Colts are an interesting one. Uh, to keep an eye out for. So George, thank you so much for coming on the show and talking about Eberflus. For the rest of our listeners, you can follow us at CYJ Pod on Twitter. You can follow myself at Ben W. Blessington, Michael at Michael underscore Nania. You can find this podcast wherever you listen to podcasts, iTunes, Spotify, Jets X Factor, the best place to go for Jets content. A lot of stuff happening this offseason for the Jets, a big one. Head coaching search, maybe a new quarterback. We got you up to date there. Again, George, thank you for coming on. Matt Eberflus, ladies and gentlemen, I, I think he is a dark horse candidate um, that that has a an increasing probability to be the next head coach. Of the it's Carr going down again, and it's Quentin Williams this time for the Jets. The middle in the air, picked off. Brian Poole to the end zone, touchdown. Hunter to beat, and the punter brings him down. Braden Mann saved a touchdown, most likely. Looks right, fires a bomb down the right sideline again for Mims. What a catch by Denzel Mims.